Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, Mind website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 12 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, April the 21st. First, I'll be talking to Mark Fazio, the co-CEO of Mate, an independently owned Sydney-based challenger telco provider that is taking on the big players in the industry through great customer service and exceptional value for their customers. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures, but now let's talk to Mark Fazio. Well... Mark, give us an idea of how Mate came onto the scene to fill a gap in the MBN rollout market. What sort of gap are we talking about? To, to tell that story, we're going to start back while we even started Mate in the first place. And back in April 2016, my identical twin brother, David, who's our CEO and obviously my twin brother, he, he worked for the wholesale companies back then, a wholesale company called M2, which is now Vocus. And he was selling networks to people like us at Mate. So he was selling networks, wholesaling networks to, to providers like us. And at that point, the MBN was probably partway through getting rolled out, but ADS still was still prevalent, right? And so all the, the big guys were still focused on ADSL because it gave them 70 points of margin versus MBN where it didn't. And and I guess if you think about it, like, we, you know, David, you know, had the vision saying that, well, you know, everybody's going to have to change at some point. We have the opportunity to get a head start. And so, and that's how Mate was born. It was about, it was born to be the, one of the first telcos to offer unlimited MBN broadband and deliver MBN broadband to consumers to offer them a better service in a market where it wasn't being offered or pushed for the moment because all the big guys were making a lot more money off the old technology. And we saw that as a gap and we went into the market and, and we started pushing that. Now, that, that was the reason why we started. But if you, if you look at the, what the gap that we feel that we've, we're filling today for MBN, because as you can imagine, everybody's doing it. There's a, quite a cluttered market. I think what we're doing is simple, simple things, right? It's not rocket science. We are simplifying the process to get people connected. You know what? Everybody needs mobile and internet, right? Everybody needs MBN, but... Dambian offers a very convoluted process to get connected. There's multiple technologies. There's multiple hardware variables that you have to think about in your home. Your, ha- your home can be big. It can be small. Hardware, good uh, entry-level hardware could be fine, but you might need mesh products. You might need 
uh, gateways you might need or so on and so forth, all these different things to have the best experience at the home. And I think that can, for the everyday person, that can get very convoluted and very complicated. And I think the difference that we offer is a very no frills approach to simplifying what you need to get connected, but not only just to get connected, but to have the best experience in your home. And I think that's the gap we're feeling. Now, I know a lot of other competitors say that, but I think we do that. And if you look at our awards speak for our service over the last couple of years, you know, we won the Customer Service Institute Australia Award for Customer Service Team of the Year. We won the International Award as well. And so even though we say we're good, we benchmark ourselves against the best as well. What sort of prices are we talking about? Yes, yeah, so price-wise, we start from um, unlimited MBN, so it's all unlimited, from $59 a month. But if you bundle on mobile, we take $10 off your internet monthly fee. So theoretically, if you bundle on mobile, we are offering you entry-level MBN at $49 a month, which makes us one of the most price-competitive carriers in the market. You, you, you also have a call centre, and it's based in Australia, which yeah. has to be something. Yeah, and I and I look. We've always been focused on Australian-based service because you know what? With the MBN, it's again. I'll say it again. It's very convoluted, and if you don't know it or you haven't connected it yourself, how are you supposed to go and communicate that to consumers, right? And so, I um, so we 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 focused heavily on bringing the service and keeping the service in Australia. You know, I'm looking at the left here, our whole call center. We've got about 50 people in the call center now in Western Sydney, but I think what really proved that model right was during COVID, right? If you look during the COVID period, a lot of our competitors weren't even answering the phone because a lot of their call centres were based in the Philippines or in India. And obviously the breakout of COVID meant they couldn't they couldn't accelerate to, for people working at home as quickly as, as we could here, right? Now, I'm not saying overseas call centres are bad, but, uh, but I mean, there's, there's only so much you can learn. You're, you're, you're getting people to help you with something that they've never seen or, or realistically even have experienced it's themselves, right? And that's that's a real challenge. In terms of contracts, uh, do you, I mean, most, a lot of telcos have lock-in contracts. So what are yours like? Oh, we've always had no contract services. Um, we, we don't believe in contracts. There's no there's no contracts between mates, right? And so that's what that's what our brand's all about. You know, our brand is all about mateship and how we be your best mate for your for your internet and mobile service and and offering contracts doesn't allow us to be best mates, right? And so we've never we've never focused on contracts at all. It's not something that we need. We we don't lock anybody in. And the other thing as well, we also offer the first thirty days money back guarantee. Um, so if you're not happy with our service in the first thirty days for your internet. We'll, 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 ref, we'll, we'll refund you that monthly fee because we don't want you to come here and have a bad experience. And if you do, then we want to make sure that you don't pay for it as well. So that's how we back ourselves. Uh, so how do you set yourselves up? In, I mean, it's a very competitive market. I mean, you've not only got giants like Telstra and Optus, but you've got all the others. Uh, you've got TPG and you've got uh, Vocus, which has just been sold to Macquarie. How do you set yourselves up? How do you set yourselves up? Uh, how, do you, how do you compete? Uh, well, I mean, we compete with... We keep, we, my opinion, and and the way I, I I think first and foremost, I think we've we've seen it all. But I think culture is number one for a business, right? You need to your your the people that are running your business, which are the guys that are you know got their the sleeves up and running the business every day, speaking to our customers, need to be bought into our vision and to in what we're trying to achieve. And if they're not there, then we can't deliver that vision to our customers. So first and foremost, I think we've developed the culture. That is second to none in my opinion, and I've worked for a lot of uh, uh, big corporates in in the past in my career, and I think culture 
basically look like that. In, in, it makes our our staff want to go the extra mile for our customers, and uh, I think and and that's that's the first part. The second part is just having simplified systems, right? I think a lot of people talk about automation, right? Um, and how you how do you automate the interactivity with your customer to service them their needs? Now, I think in Australia, I don't think we've gone all the way with 100% automation. I think there's still you have to have the right balance of automation and systems versus touching a customer. And I think we get that balance really right. I really think that we've got, you know, we've got a level of sophistication in our systems, but also we balance that with the right interaction with our customers as well. And then what what it means is that we don't we're not seeing as a faceless telco. I mean, I mean not to bad competitors, but there's some competitors out there that you actually can't call them. You have to go online and message them. And then and then if, if you've got an ex- escalation point, it gets escalated to a call centre based in a different country that have only got a, a textbook to work from. And then if it goes outside that textbook, then they have to get transferred to somebody in Australia. And I mean, that's the challenges we have. I think that just to answer your, your, your summarise your, your question there, it's, it's culture, it's the right balance between systems and people. And it's, and, and it's, it's the right processes to enable a customer gets exactly what they need uh, and then the last one is Australian-based call centre. I mean, I can't tell you how much that has been a benefit for us in the last 12 months, being able to talk to people locally about the service that they have and have, have experienced it ourselves as well. And so I think that's, that's, that's why we're competing. So, I mean, COVID's been quite important for you, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think COVID has dro- definitely driven... I mean, obviously, everybody's had challenges during COVID. I think for us, it's enabled us to I mean grow which is a good thing but I mean uh, and by default I guess that's that's what's pushed that right people have gone home to, to, to do school people have gone home to work and connectivity has come has become more important than ever but all the the reason why I think COVID is the most important thing that happened to our business is because it allowed us to show off what we do and how we do it better than anybody else it allowed the Australian consumers to, to see what 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 we do and and how it can make their lives easier because our job is simply to get people connected and keep them connected the rest the rest will work itself out and i think we've always said that we're good we've always said that we've got great systems and processes but COVID meant that people needed that and i think we really shone through in that period and that's why it was important to us and so tell us more about the culture. I mean, what did you do for the culture? Well, I mean, the culture, we, our business started as a family business, right? Like the business literally... You and, you and your brother. Yeah, me and my brother, but it literally started in my auntie's backyard, right? So, you know, people say it's a backyard business. This literally was a backyard business to start with. And, uh, you know, and in the first phase of our growth, I mean, I, I lived in Singapore, right? I was doing my parts on the weekend because, you know, I was working for Microsoft and based in Singapore and... Everything I was doing, I was doing on weekends and my twin brother was here basically drumming up the business. And, you know, we grew it to about 30,000 customers in my auntie's backyard, hired about 15 cousins and family members. We're Italian, so there's a lot of us, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of resource in the family to call upon. And, you know, and, and then now we're at, what, 72 people. Uh, you know, we've got a big office in Western Sydney, which has a call centre and so on and so forth. But the culture, uh, we've kept we've kept true to the original culture, which is um, it's a family run and owned business. And that started from, from mates getting together to, to make a difference in their lives. Um, and we've kept that culture true. And so if you look at our, 
our business today, the one thing that was unique with our business when we, when, when we were in my auntie's backyard is that she would cook every day for us, right? Now, we're now in a, in a, a big corporate office in Western Sydney and my auntie's still cooking for everybody every day. And so we make sure that we keep those true things culture and the new people that we're bringing in, they're experiencing that from day one. And I think that's, it's, it's, it just means more, right? And that's, that's what we feel that we've delivered. Right, okay. Well, we'll be fascinated to watch how mates develops. And Mark, thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me, Leon. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist, Callum Pickering. Callum, unemployment has remained steady at 3.5%. Well, it was a really strong uh, set of figures uh, for the month of, of March. Obviously, the unemployment rate being at 3.5% is an outstanding result given the amount of uh, monetary policy tightening we've experienced over the past 12 months. The fact that employment was up 53,000 people is an extraordinary result at this point in the economic cycle, particularly with those job gains all being full-time roles. Um, Full-time employment increased by about 72,000 people in March alone, which is another great outcome. So overall, it's a pretty uh, clear sign that the Australian labour market remains incredibly tight by historical standards and really hasn't dropped off at all, despite the, the impact of high inflation and rising interest rates. And weakening global growth as well. Exactly. Normally, you'd expect all of those factors together would have contributed to some deterioration in the labour market. And yet, thus far, there just is no sign of that occurring. Well, it actually coincides with the National Australia Bank survey, which showed that business conditions have been resilient and they're well above their long-run average. Yeah, that's right. Um, Businesses are still pretty optimistic about the outlook for their operations and the broader economy. And that's reflected in their hiring activity not just in the employment figures that we're seeing each and every month, but also the the high number of job vacancies and job advertisements available across the country. Most of these forward-looking indicators of uh, labour demand remain incredibly healthy, which is a sign that uh, it's unlikely that the unemployment rate is going to spike in the near term because any person who loses their job in the current economic environment can reasonably expect to find a new opportunity reasonably quickly. But there is an anticipation, isn't there, that the Australian economy will slow considerably over the second half of the year? Yeah, this is this is certainly my expectation. And the, the main reason for that is simply that when you look at the the Australian economy, what what's clear is that the household conditions are likely to deteriorate. I mean, it's going to be due to a combination of uh, higher mortgage repayments, falling asset prices, and the ongoing decline in inflation-adjusted wages. So my sense is that these these factors that have, have been in play for much of the last 12 months and haven't yet hit the economy, the impact of that is going to become bigger over time the longer this cycle persists. And at, at some point, it's going to lead to deterioration in household conditions. We haven't seen it yet, but with each and every day, it becomes more likely that households are going to shift their behaviour because they can no longer rely on their savings and they can no longer maintain the the spending patterns that we've seen um, throughout the pandemic recovery. What will that mean for unemployment? Surely that will rise. Well, well, certainly if the household sector rolls over, then you would expect uh, the unemployment rate to pick up. The household consumption is more than half the Australian economy. And if it struggles over the second half of the year, you'd expect that to feed through to lower levels of job creation and higher levels of unemployment. It's just a matter of, well, how high do you go? If the unemployment rate can stay below 4%, then that, I think, would be an outstanding result. 
Um, and certainly the Reserve Bank of Australia isn't expecting a, a sharp increase in the unemployment rate. But at the same time, there is obviously a lot of uncertainty around what the, the impact on the household sector is, is, is going to be. Uh, it's obviously proven to be more resilient than anticipated um, so far during this, this economic cycle. Um, but like I said before, there is an expectation that it will deteriorate at some point this year. So what, it could rise to 4 to 4.5% by the end of the year? Uh, I certainly think that is a possibility. Yeah, I wouldn't want to put a specific number on it. And, and obviously the economy has uh, consistently overperformed throughout this whole um, economic recovery. So hopefully I'm wrong. And it proves to be more resilient over the second half of this year as well. But certainly an unemployment rate in the, the 4 to 4.5% range would seem reasonable given some of the headwinds that the household sector is facing. Right, OK. But the, there was one negative, wasn't there, in terms of underemployment? That's right. Tons of good data in the March release. One of the, the weaker points, though, was that the rate of underemployment increased to 6.2% from 5.8%. Now, this could just be noise in the data. It can jump around a little bit from month to month. Um, in fact, back in February, it, it fell to 5.8% from 6.2%. So it's sort of returning to where it was a couple of months ago. But the underemployment rate is an important one to keep an eye on because given this cost of living crisis that we're going through, uh, what we could quite possibly see is more uh, part-time workers looking for more hours in order to, to deal with those cost of living pressures. And if that was to eventuate, then there is that potential for the underemployment rate to spike. And is that the reason you're saying why underemployment has increased in this particular period? It, it's a possibility. It would be speculation at, at this point. Like I said, it could just be noise in the data, given it is a, a one-month move. But it is absolutely a, a narrative that I think we need to keep in mind when we look at the underemployment rate, um, particularly as it evolves over the next few months. So you're saying a sharp rise in the unemployment rate remains unlikely in the near term? The unemployment rate, yeah. Um, certainly over the next two to three months, I wouldn't expect much upward movement in the unemployment rate, just because there is such a, a strong number of job vacancies available across the country right now. There's still almost uh, twice as many job vacancies at the moment as there was before the pandemic began. And that set of dynamics just isn't conducive to a, a sharp increase in the unemployment rate. What's important to remember, though, is that obviously economic conditions can change quite quickly. And so over the next six months, we could see the number of job vacancies decline quite a lot. And if that was to occur, then that would feed through to lower levels of uh, employment growth, which also then would potentially lead to higher levels of unemployment. But, but certainly right now, at this minute, the dynamics in the labour market are, are pretty healthy and indicate that the unemployment rate should remain low for the immediate future. But uh, what does that mean for the Reserve Bank? Well, certainly the Reserve Bank um, anticipates that further rate hikes are likely to be needed to defeat the current inflation outbreak. However, given that the, the rate hikes hit the Australian economy with a considerable lag, often you know, 12, 18 months, maybe even two years, um, the RBA is mindful that the economy hasn't yet felt the full impact of the first rate hikes, let alone the ones that followed. A good example of this, I think, is that average mortgage rates on outstanding loans have increased by about 2.1% since the beginning of the RBA's hiking cycle. Um, and that compares to a 3.5% increase in the cash rate. So we've seen 2.1% flow through from that 3.5% increase in the cash rate. Now, the gap between the two reflects um, the existence of fixed loans. And as those loans roll over, the gap between the average mortgage rate and 
the change in the cash rate will begin to to narrow. But it's a you know it's a clear sign of of just how this uh, changes in monetary policy flow through the economy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It can take a long time. And, and so we would, we're going to see mortgage rates continue to increase over the next 12 months, narrowing that gap, which means that we just haven't seen the, the full impact of, of monetary policy tightening thus far. And, and the other point, too, is that the path to lower inflation probably requires a meaningful increase in the unemployment rate. Yeah, that's the unfortunate um, fact. I don't think we're likely to see inflation of between 2 and 3% if the unemployment rate is at 3.5%. It's probably unlikely if the unemployment rates are four percent, and and so we need to be mindful of, of that, given just the the strength we are seeing in the labour market. If the March figures that we we saw yesterday, um, you know, continue into April and May, I think it greatly increases the probability of future rate hikes this year. If we were to see a little bit of a, a deterioration, just a little bit, maybe the unemployment rate increasing to three point seven percent over the next couple of months then maybe that would allow the RBA to pause on a rate hike a little longer. So the the next set of labour market figures are going to be incredibly important for the future direction of monetary policy. So we'll have to watch out for that to see whether unemployment will rise and see which way the RBA will be going. Exactly. Yeah, it's going to be driven by data. The employment and unemployment figures are going to be incredibly important, as of course will be the inflation figures. But but certainly if the labour market remains as strong as it currently is, then there is a very strong argument for further tightening of monetary policy. Which would indicate that uh, the RBA will be continuing down this path for some time because it might take some time before we're down to 2 to 3% inflation. Well, exactly. Um, we've, we've seen some tentative evidence that inflation may have passed its peak, but the monthly inflation measure is still at 6.8%, which is a far cry from a 2 to 3%. Uh, target. The RBA itself doesn't expect that we'll get there in the next couple of years, but if the labour market remains incredibly strong and inflation persistently high, then the RBA will have no choice but to tighten policy further. Right, okay. Well, Callum, that's all quite interesting and uh, important. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, China will be the top contributor to global growth over the next five years, with its share set to be double that of the US, according to the International Monetary Fund. The nation's slice of global gross domestic product expansion is expected to represent 22.6% of total world growth through 2028, according to Bloomberg calculations, using data the fund released in its World Economic Outlook released last week. India follows at 12.9%, while the US will contribute 11.3%. And Fox settled a defamation lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems for US $787.5 million 
that's Aussie $1.2 billion, averting a high-profile trial putting one of the world's top media companies in the crosshairs over its coverage of false vote-rigging claims in the 2020 US elections, sparing Rupert Murdoch a damaging trial. The settlement was announced by Fox, Dominion and the judge in the case at the 11th hour, with a 12-person jury selected on Tuesday morning, and the case poised to kick off with opening statements on Tuesday afternoon. Dominion had sought US $1.6 billion in damages in the lawsuit filed in 2021. Judge Eric Davis from the, from the Delaware Superior Court had ordered that Dominion voting should open its US $1.6 billion, that's Aussie $2.4 billion defamation case against Fox News over Fox News Broadcasting, while claims that secret algorithms in Dominion's voting machines overturned the 2020 US presidential election. This was the biggest threat to Murdoch's empire since the hacking scandal in 2011. But for Murdoch, it was even worse than the hacking scandal. Unlike the UK hacking scandal, where news executives were blamed, records show Murdoch was directly responsible for Fox News management, at least on paper. On Easter Sunday, after arguing for weeks that Murdoch as chairman and parent company Fox Corp could not be called to testify in the trial. Fox lawyers revealed that since 2019, Rupert was listed in the SEC filings as an officer of Fox News, the executive chairman. Although a Fox News lawyer called this an, an honorific post, it puts Murdoch in the hot seat because his disastrous two-day deposition in January makes him the man Dominion most wanted to question. The case was riveting, with the raw inner workings of Murdoch's media empire on display. It was all there in the emails, texts and depositions. Murdoch discussing or, or instructing when Fox News will call the election, what his newspapers should be saying, editing editorials, reassuring Fox Court directors. In a withering summary motion judgment on March 31, Judge Eric Davis ruled out three of the four defences that Fox was claiming. Fox News cannot say its claims against Dominion were protected as neutral reporting or fair reporting of the court case or merely as opinion, Davis ruled. The key issues remaining for the jury were whether Fox's reporting was made with actual malice or reckless disregard for the truth. That was hard to prove in American law, but a sobering lineup of senior US lawyers, News Corp's The Wall Street Journal alone quoted four or five of them, say that Dominion had a strong shot at winning. This case was important because it left News Corp seriously damaged. And business clinton collapses hit a three and a half year high last month. To jump back above, pre-pandemic trends for the first time as rising interest rates and a cooling economy hurt corporate Australia. Insolvency lawyers say the end of the cheap money era, banks becoming less forgiving of distressed corporate borrowers and the Australian Taxation Office cracking down on company directors for unpaid tax debt are driving more businesses to the wall. The corporate regulator released new insolvency data on Tuesday showing that 831 companies had administrators appointed last month compared with an average of 720 for the same month between 2016-2017 and 2018-19 financial years. Company failures have now risen sharply in construction, 1,601 administration, accommodation food services, 808, retail trade, 373, and manufacturing, 347 so far this financial year. These four industries combined made up about half the 5,689 corporate collapses recorded in the first nine months to March 31, according to analysis of the Australian Securities Investments Commission data. And the gas industry is bracing for the threat of a fifth market intervention since December, as Treasurer Jim Chalmers warns Australians may not be getting a reasonable return from exports of their natural resources and ways raising taxes on surging profits. Chalmers said on Monday he'd received a report from Treasury on the settings of a $2 billion a year petroleum resources rent tax, the PRRT, that, apply, that applies to offshore oil and gas projects. While the government is yet to finalise its position, Chalmers declared there was an open question over whether the scheme was delivering the revenue that the community expected. 
the PRRT is levied on offshore oil and gas projects at a rate of 40% of their taxable profit, but this is applied after generous deductions for capital investments, raising questions over the quantum of revenue it raised compared with the billions reaped in profits by gas giants including Woodside, Chevron and Santos. LNG, one of Australia's most valuable exports, is forecast to hit $91 billion in export earnings this financial year, three times more than in 2020-21, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushed fossil fuel prices to record highs. The 2022-23 federal budget papers show the PRT is expected to raise $2.6 billion this financial year, but will thereafter decline steadily over the next four years to about $2 billion by 2025-26. NG analysts at Investment Bank Macquarie on Monday told clients they expected PRT reforms to be announced around the May budget. And the National Disability Insurance Scheme has lost its way and needs far greater reform than just weeding out crooks to ensure it remains sustainable, the Albanese government concedes. NTIS Minister Bill Shorten, who helped establish the scheme when Labor was last in government, used a pre-budget speech to the National Press Club to assure those in need that the scheme is here to stay, but badly in need of a reboot. Mr Shorten spoke of unethical service providers using the disabled as cash cows to line their own pockets and damage the reputation of the entire industry. In addition, it's understood that broader structural changes being contemplated include tying funding to achieving results for participants rather than the volume of services provided and moving participants to longer-term plans rather than annual plans which rise in costs each year. The NDIS long ago conceded its original forecast maximum annual price tag of about $25 billion and will cost the budget $35.5 billion this financial year. Unchecked, that will reach almost $90 billion a year by 2032. About 585,000 people are NDIS participants, including 10% of boys aged between 5 and 7. About 6,000 people are joining every month. An overhaul of Australia's capital gains tax system could improve the budget by $5 billion annually, with leading economists throwing their weight behind a return to indexing investment returns to inflation as part of a broader package of tax reform. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has flagged a public conversation about the sustainability of Australia's current fiscal settings, including $250 billion of annual tax concessions, as the Albanese government tries to plug a $50 billion structural budget deficit. Labor made its first attempt in February, saying it would levy higher taxes on superannuation accounts with more than $3 million, but has not identified any specific areas of further reform. Australia's 50% capital gains tax discount for investors was ripe for reform, said Grattan Institute Chief Executive Danielle Wood. One of the main reasons for the discount, but not the only one, is so that investors are not taxed for the component of the capital gain that is due to inflation. And at least 300,000 households may currently be experiencing negative cash flow due to unnecessary rate rises, according to a hard-hitting Deloitte Access Economics report. In its latest Business Outlook report, the independent economics consultancy warned that the Reserve Bank had put Australia's economy on a knife's edge. After 10 rate rises since last year, the RBA is tempting fate, and Australia is now facing the weakest rate of economic growth outside of a pandemic since the recession of the early 1990s. With households hurting, dwelling construction in the doldrums and the global environment shaky, Deloitte Access Economics has revised down expectations for Australian economic growth this year and next to just 1.5% and 1.2% respectively from 1.7% and 1.6% previously. Deloitte is forecasting the unemployment rate to grow to 4.1% next financial year and 4.6% the year after. Headline inflation is tipped to fall from 7.2% this financial year to 4.2% in 2023-24 and 2.6% the year after. And Australians lost a record $3.1 billion to scams in 2022 as government, law enforcement and the private sector look to improve collaborative efforts to support the community in the fight against scams, according to the latest targeting scams report from the competition watchdog, the ACCC. The total combined losses of $3 billion plus reported Scamwatch, reports cyber 
IDK, Australian Financial Crimes Exchange, AFCX and the government agencies come as the ACCC Scam Watch Service reports. It received 239,237 scam reports last year, a 16.5% drop in the number of reports received in 2021. However, financial losses reported to Scam Watch in 2022 totaled more than $569 million, an 80% increase compared to losses reported in the previous year. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission says that despite fewer reports to Scam Watch, the losses experienced by each victim rose by more than 50% last year to an average of almost $20,000. This is due in part to scammers using new technology to lure and deceive victims. And business lending is set to go electric at Commonwealth Bank, with the nation's biggest financier aiming to grow the business bank loan with the launch of a green offering. CBA will offer business customers cheaper loans for electric vehicles and equipment, charging and storage station, renewable energy such as wind and solar, and hydrogen powered machinery. It says the loans will finance the electric and hydrogen vehicles at a 1% discount to the standard rate, while other qualifying other assets would merit a 0.5% cut to borrowing rates. Vehicle loans will be limited to about $200. $50,000. The launch of a green asset financing program comes in the wake of several moves by CBA to offer green lending options. The bank launched a green home loan offering last year, soon followed by a home improvement loan, allowing customers to borrow to fund more energy-efficient residential properties. And the Climate Change Authority has recommended a far-reaching series of initiatives scaling up and accelerating Australia's approach to the capture and storage of carbon, known as sequestration. It points to estimates from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that to achieve a 50% chance of limiting global warming to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, about 6 billion tonnes of CO2 will have to be removed globally per year by 2050, and about 14 billion tonnes per year by 2100. While Australia has existing policies and institutions to incentivise carbon capture, the climate body says new approaches with industry need to be found to ensure enough investment flows to technology and new projects. This could see the federal government's $10 billion Green Bank and Australian Renewable Energy Agency being given expanded roles to turbocharge the nation's carbon storage industry as pressure grows for cheaper emissions cut to hit a net zero goal by 2050. Carbon capture and storage in particular has been put forward as a technology fix to help Australia meet its emissions goals and part of a broader industry drive to hit net zero by 2050. However, big operators like Santos and previously warned Australia is missing an opportunity to create a major carbon capture and storage industry in on governments to prioritise the technology. The Climate Change Authority has also pushed for changes to give the industry a boost. Investment in approaches like CCUS, carbon capture, utilisation and storage, with high upfront costs need to be de-risked. Governments should explore risk-sharing approaches, for example, carbon capture and storage hubs, including opportunities to co-invest in subsurface basin analyses for geological sequestration both on and offshore, and key infrastructure for storage and transport, the report says. And coal exports through Newcastle had the slowest start to the year since at least 2019 as wet weather and labour shortages hampered productions. Figures released by the Port, Australia's largest thermal coal facility, showed 31.8 million mass tonnes were shipped in the first three months of the year, down 10% on the same period last year and 18% lower than the first quarter of 2019. The softer and expected start to the year follows the disclosure from Whitehaven Coal the production at its Malls Creek mine in New South Wales will be lower than first forecast. Additional export data will be released to investors in the next fortnight as major coal producers release quarterly production figures. Yang Coal is due to report on Wednesday, followed by BHP and Whitehaven on Friday. Glencore will report its production numbers the following week. Last week, Whitehaven said on- ongoing difficulties attracting labour to its Malls Creek mine, a spate of poor weather and a complicated transition to automated trucks had forced a production downgrade for the year. Whitehaven lowered its production guidance for the 2023 financial year to range between 18 million and 19.3 million tonnes 
down from a range of 19 million to 20.4 million tonnes. And Australians have cut back on online shopping as high interest rates and cost of living pressures batter household budgets, new data shows. Australian fintech Airwallex's first digital economy index shows that the turnover of Australian online retailers have fallen by $124 million over the past 12 months, driven by fewer purchases of discretionary products like clothes and fashion products. E-commerce spending fell by 2.5% in the March quarter to be 12.1% lower over the year, the payments platform estimates. The data is based on a representative sample of 1,000 Airwallex business customers. The figures are broadly consistent with official trade data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which show that online retail turnover remains below the peaks reached in September 2021, towards the end of the Delta lockdowns. The ABS estimates that Australians spend $3.9 billion in February of online retail outlets, compared to $4.3 billion in September 2021. Given both the population and price of retail products increased since September 2021, the fact that the total value of sales has not grown implies households are buying few, fewer things. And the federal government is considering forcing streaming giants Netflix, Paramount and Amazon to spend up to 20% of the money they make locally on new Australian programs, but investment in sports or buying local films or programs will not be counted towards any new quotas. Streamers will be heavily incentivised to create Australian children's programs and documentaries under a newly formed national cultural policy, which is being used as a way to ensure local stories continue to be produced. The government believes its scheme could deliver between $132 million and $528 million in annual local content investment by 2026, based on predictions from Ampere analysis that are dependent on the regulatory model it ultimately chooses. A confidential stakeholder consultation paper shows the government is actively considering five ways to make global streaming giants create local programs, including a model that requires streaming services to dedicate 20% of annual gross subscription revenue in Australian drama, documentaries and, ch- and children's programs. It is also considering programs with content obligations of between 5% and 11%, all of which includes incentives to encourage production at high, in high-risk genres, children's, children's content and documentaries. However, the models do not count investment in sports and mostly ignore the acquisition of existing local programs or films as ways to meet the requirements of the scheme. Streaming giants have so far operated without regulation in Australia, unlike the commercial freeware broadcasters and Foxtel, meaning they are under no obligation to produce or even carry Australian content. While they do invest in local programs, and in some cases have spent millions on sports rights deals, they're not required to do so by law. By contrast, the European Union requires 30% of titles in the large streamers' libraries to be from European countries. And Temu is a bargain lender's paradise, a cut-price online marketplace offering everything from wireless earbuds to socket wrenches and makeup brushes that aims to unseat Big W and Kmart. It became the most downloaded app in the US, even topping Amazon.com, and now has its sights on launching in Australia with the aim of disrupting discount retailers. Temu withstands the T-Mart price down. It's a subsidiary of Chinese-backed PDD Holdings, which is listed on the NASDAQ. PDD also owns China-based Pinduo Duo, a social e-commerce platform similar to Groupon. It could become the next big disruptor to an already crowded marketplace and threaten the dominance of discount retailers such as Kmart, Big W and Target, but only if it gains enough scale. Temu has had a big lift in traffic since its March Australian launch, with a six-fold increase in month-on-month hits to its website to about, to about 280,000, according to SimilarWeb. Amazon is getting about 45 million hits a month, while Catch.com gets nearly 8 million. Temu, which does not respond to emails, will need to work at growing traffic, given it is known by few consumers. In Australia, it is offering free shipping on all orders and free returns within 90 days, as it looks to gain an early following. 
Products are shipped directly from factories and warehouses in China to the consumer. Craig Wolford, MST Marquis' head of consumer research, said the marketplace will be one to watch and could present a challenge to the discount department stores as well as West Farmer-backed catch Woolworths own my deal with Kogan. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Tammy Cassio, founder and chair of Philatimo, which is an international business operating in Timor-Leste, which runs IMS, International Mobility Solutions, a job placement organisation, and ISET, Industry Safety Assessment and Training, a training organisation. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.